Well, good evening. It's good to be back with you all. It's been a little while. Uh, to open this evening, um, please just open with me to Ephesians, where we've been. And I just want to start by reading the passage we're going to be studying this evening. Uh, so we're at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going over verses 5 through 9. Let's go ahead and read. Verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. For the past few weeks, as we've been going through Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, We've been talking about how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to be living as imitators of God. We're supposed to be walking as children of light in the midst of darkness, separate from the world, separate from the darkness. We've talked about how we're supposed to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ and how wives are supposed to emulate that towards husbands, how husbands are supposed to love their wives. We've talked about children, how they need to be obedient to their parents as they're in their home but they need to honor them always, and that fathers are to make sure that they're not exasperating their children or provoking them to anger, but disciplining and instructing them well. And finally, we come to this section about slaves and masters. And I don't know about you, but initially when, when reading this section, perhaps it might seem like a bit of a disconnect. You know, we're, we're talking about family units, right? We're talking about wives, we're talking about husbands, we're talking about children, we're talking about fathers. And then now we start talking about slaves. What's up with that? Why, why are we spending time in, in discussing how Christians are supposed to live their lives? Why are we jumping from family units to talking about slavery and masters? Well, in order to explain that, let me give you a bit of, a, a, a bit of an example from my own life. I was heavily involved during high school and in college um, in the church. I spent, I spent a lot of time doing school, and I spent a lot of time with my family. But you know what I spent a lot of time doing as well? Was working. Uh, I spent, I, 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 after I, my time at Chick-fil-A, for many of you who know, I, was, I worked at a Chick-fil-A mall for about six years, almost six years. And when I was done, I was able to print out a sheet of the collection of all of my clock-ins and clock-outs. From the time when I started, um, on March 4th, 2014, to the last time I clocked out uh, on January 8th at 2020. And during that time, I collected the total, and it was 8,862 hours and 24 minutes of time. Christian living is not only about life in the family or life in the church. You do spend a lot of time with your family. You do spend a lot of time in the church. But Christian living is also about life in the world. 
And I spent, and you guys are going to spend, a lot of time in the world. And most of that time you're going to spend is going to be working. Most of that time you're going to spend is going to be under another authority that's separate from your parents' authority, or separate from the authority of the church, or separate from when one day, if you get married, if you're, if you're a woman, submitting to your husband. You're going to spend a lot of time submitting to authority in the world. And so for me, over the course of my almost six-year tenure at Chick-fil-A, that was 369 days on the clock, literally. There was no, just take six years and then compress one of those years was all work. And so uh, over a year of my life was literally spent working there, and you will also be in similar situations. So you'd better know how to live for Christ during that time. It's good to know how you're supposed to live in relation to your family. It's good to know how you're supposed to live in relationship to the church. It's good to know how you're supposed to relate in uh, governing uh, authorities, as we've talked about, as Thomas talked about. But what's really important is how you're supposed to live your life in those other places, those places where sometimes you're just spending hours and hours of what feels like monotony, uh, depending on the type of work that you're doing, or hours and hours of you just can't wait for your shift to be over. Hours and hours of you're having to deal with your coworkers every day. Hours and hours of you're having to respect and listen to and obey what your boss wants you to do. Hours, hours of that. You got to learn how to live for Christ there too. And that's what this passage, uh, this passage's principles are going to be discussing. So if you're a Christian, what this passage will teach us is that you will obey and respect your authorities as you would obey and respect your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, the title is Walking as Slaves and Masters. Walking as Slaves and Masters. And we're going to see three signs of healthy Christian relationships in the workplace. If you are a Christian, if you're having a, a, a living a healthy Christian life, you're spiritually healthy, then there's going to be three different types of, uh, three signs of the health of that life in the workplace. We're going to see the obedience of slaves, the goodwill of slaves, and the goodwill of masters. Now, before we get into those three signs, we need to talk, we need to get a little bit of historical context, because I keep throwing out this word slaves, and I'm sure some of you might have an appropriate thought of what that meant for that time, but some of you don't, perhaps, and so I want to make sure to discuss that couple important things we need to know about the slavery that Paul is talking about in comparison to American slavery um, that existed, um, that has had a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about recent, over the past few years. So first thing, abolition is a modern concept. Slavery, or, or some form of it, has pretty much always been in existence up until the time of the Civil War, when abolition started to happen and, happen, and in other countries it started to be abolished. That entire concept was completely foreign to the world for most of its history. Second of all, you became a slave by predominantly four different ways. Either you were kidnapped and sold into slavery, or you were conquered by another nation and then you became subject to that nation's whims and you became a slave that way. Or you were a slave by birth. Your parents were slaves, so you were born and so now you're a slave. 
And finally, it was possible and actually was often done during the ancient times in which Paul was writing that you would sell yourself into slavery on purpose. Now, you may ask yourself, why on earth would someone be willing to submit themselves completely, wholly to someone else and, and become their slave? Why would they do that? Well, they might do that in order to live. Because if you became a slave under a well-functioning household, you now had a place to eat. You now had a place that would clothe you and take care of you. Because in Roman society, in Greek society, the predominant thought, while there were, there were nasty masters, the predominant thought, though, was if you want your household to function well and you need people to take care of it, and you want those people to take care of it well, well, you should take care of those people that are taking care of all of your stuff. If you take care of them, they'll take care of you. So, a lot of slaves were treated well. A lot of slaves were provided for. And so, if you sold yourself, in a, if you're you know, sitting there on the street and you don't have anything to do, you don't have any money, you might willingly put yourself into slavery so that you can survive. But a little bit higher than that, you might put yourself into slavery because you like to pursue an education. Or you have somewhat something of an education beforehand and you willingly submit yourself into slavery for a period of time with a master so that then you can tutor his children. Or you might go into the works of art and pursue those things. Or maybe you might be a doctor and you might do medicinal practice for a particular household, sell yourself into slavery that way. There are a lot of, uh, the Roman and Greek society was full of slavery all over the place. And so when Paul talks about slavery here, he's not talking to a small section of his audience. He's probably talking to a large majority. And the corollary to us is this. While it was the case that being a slave, whether it was American slavery or ancient slavery, while being a slave was to be someone's property without any ability to escape that reality, without the master's or government's approval, and though many, uh, and many slaves did become so by choice, this passage's principles apply because for you guys, there will be times in your life where you find yourself under authority either by your own choice or in such a case where you didn't have a choice. You're just, you're there. You got put under that authority whether you like it or not. Sometimes you get to choose, sometimes you don't. And so the principles here, because slaves could either go into slavery by choice or they were slaves and they didn't have any choice at all. What we learn here will apply directly to us as well. In the situations where you find yourselves under authority, whether you like that authority or wanted to be under that authority or not. So, let's talk about some examples real quick of that, just to make sure that as we discuss this passage talking about slaves and masters, we can think about the own authorities in our lives and how these principles can apply. And here's some question and answer time. What are some good examples of authorities that you would find yourself under, whether you liked it or not? Yes. Government. Great. And Tom has talked about that at length, so we're not going to talk about that tonight. But yes, government is a very big one. What else? Yeah. Teachers. Teachers in school. Teachers for when you're taking music lessons. What else? Yeah. Parents. And we've discussed that at length as well, so we won't discuss that one tonight. But yes, parents are a very big authority that 
are there whether you like it or not. Yes. I'm sorry? Coaches. Yes. So if you are pursuing any type of sporting uh, endeavor, your coaches are your authorities. This is good. What else? Yeah. Managers. Yeah, like in, like in the workplace. Yes. So you have uh, often a hierarchy in the workplace. At Chick-fil-A, you had the team members, and then you had the team leaders above that, and then you had the managers, and then after that, you had the operator. So there's a lot of hierarchy of authority there. What, anything else? Yeah. The church. You have authorities within the church system. So not only do you have the elders and, uh, and those there, but you also have those who've been recognized to be the authorities in the different ministries. So our youth leaders here this evening, other leaders that, you know, you're, you're, out, you're out participating in another ministry, and a leader over that ministry wants you to help with something. Well, they're your authority in that situation. So guys, there's a lot of authorities out there. There's a lot of authorities to be considering. Maybe uh, just uh, one other one to consider. It's not, uh, is if you are in a family situation and your parents leave, and they put an older sibling in charge of you, or they put you in charge of your other siblings, that's also a form of authority that has been put in place. So, that's good. So now, after having discussed that, let's get into our passage and discuss the principles. So first, we have verse 5, slaves be obedient. We have the obedience of slaves. The obedience of slaves. The command is quite clear. It says, be obedient. Obey. Okay. Well, hopefully we understand what that means, especially if we observe what we've already discussed regarding children and how they're supposed to obey their parents. In the same exact way, if you are under an authority, slaves to their masters, when their masters give them commands, when their masters have expectations of them, when their masters give them responsibilities, they are to obey unequivocally, in total obedience. Now, we might, if that was the only, you know, text that we were given about slaves, we might perhaps try to, you know, find some loopholes, find some ways around that statement. But Paul gives us some specifics for how we are to obey. He gives four of them, to be exact. So he says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So the first specific is this, to all earthly masters. There are no exceptions to this rule. Paul says, to those who are your masters according to the flesh. It, this would have been a tough pill for the Ephesians to swallow. Just think, if you're a slave, whether by choice or not by choice, and you are the property of another person. You are their property. You have no escape. You have no way to get out. The, the entire governmental structure and legal system bars you from trying to escape that reality. You are their thing. And Paul says that you are to be obedient. Wow. So, application to us, you are fortunately, none of you here, 
are slaves. None of you here are the thing of another person according to the legal laws of the land. But you may be underneath some authority, whether it's in the workplace or in a different arena, where it's really, really hard. You are underneath someone that is very difficult. Paul gives you no out. Paul does not provide any exceptions. Paul, knowing what slavery was like, knowing what kinds of people some of these masters were, still tells, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, still tells these slaves that they need to be obedient to every master they have. Now, that's not to say, as we've discussed earlier, that when someone gives you a command that is against Scripture, that is contrary to Scripture, that you must obey that. But besides that exception, you're to be obedient. So that sounds pretty difficult, but doable from the standpoint of, I mean, they give you a command. Well, you know what the command is. You know you're supposed to obey. All right, well, we'll, we'll get this done. We'll obey this. And as long as you obey, great. But you don't necessarily have to respect them, right? Wrong. Second specific. To those who are masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. So not only is it to all earthly masters, it is also with reverence. With reverence. This phrase, with fear and trembling, appears several times in the New Testament, and Paul often uses it in association with how you're supposed to treat God. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now think of the imagery here. When he says, with fear, that's one thing. But then when you say, with fear and trembling, that implies the trembling connected to the fear. The fear is so great that it causes a physical manifestation of that fear in your body. So if you're fearful, but you can hold it in, okay? But if you're fearful and trembling, what's happening? You can't hold it in. It's, you're, you start shaking, your knees knocking together, your face, you know, adjusts and contorts uh, in, in f absolute fear if, if you're that frightened. And that's the idea that Paul is giving here. He, he's not, he's, he's using the imagery of it. He's not saying you're supposed to be death, in Philippians, he's not saying you're supposed to be deathly afraid and have your knees knocking together of God. He's using the imagery. It, if you have a reverence and a fear and a respect for God, it will be so great that there will be a physical manifestation of that reverence. That's the idea he's giving here for slaves to their masters. If you are to, you are not to, not, to not only obey your masters, but you are to have such a reverence for their position of authority over you that it is to manifest itself in your body physically with what? With obedience and with a attitude and course of uh, just way in which you're composed and how you treat them and how you respond to them that gives off a vibe of reverence to that master. So then, this is another thing to consider. Let's go back again to slaves and masters. 
the difficulty of being a thing of another person and perhaps being a thing of another person who is using that and manipulating that and abusing that authority. Whether the person deserves respect as an individual, as a person, as, as someone who may have good or bad character is irrelevant to this command. Paul does not say, to those, who are your, to those who are your good masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. He does not say, to those who are your honorable masters in the flesh with fear and trembling. No. He says, to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Whether or not they deserve the reverence is irrelevant. Now, you may wonder, why? Well, hopefully, based on the other passages that we've discussed when we've talked about government authority, when we've talked about parental authority, it should be clear. Who put that person in authority? Who put you under that person in authority in the grand scheme of things? God. God is the ultimate authority. And every single authority that you find in your life over you was not an accident, was not a mistake. God put that authority there. Therefore, you are to be obedient to that authority and you are to have reverence for the office of that authority because God appointed it. Whether that person deserves that reverence or not doesn't matter. Because who does deserve all reverence? God does, right? God deserves reverence. And therefore, whoever he places there deserves reverence as well. So that's the second specific, with reverence. So while it's possible to obey and perhaps even show respect to someone who's difficult to respect, to someone who's difficult to obey, perhaps you can do that without respecting them internally. You know, you can make the displays of that, outwardly obey, outwardly show reverence because you know you're supposed to, but you don't have to do that in your heart. Wrong. Paul takes away that option. He says, To those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart. So the next specific, with sincerity. The idea of this word, sincerity, is the idea that you are of one purpose and not two. You are of oneness of heart and not duplicitousness in heart. You don't have two differing ideas going on. You have one. Your obedience and your reverence are not in one side over here while you've got this disrespect and this desire to disobey and tear down over here. No, no. There's only one purpose. There's only one heart motive, and that is reverence and obedience. Sincerity. And guys, while I was at Chick-fil-A, I had a manager there that I did not get along with very well. She was appointed by the operator, and I disagreed with how she thought things should be run. I disagreed with her personality. I, we didn't mesh well together. 
I didn't like, I felt like sometimes she abused her authority from the standpoint of not like messing with other people, but like, you know, she would take advantage of that to, you know, take a break or to, you know, put the responsibility of work on someone else. She was very difficult to work with, and I did not like that. It's, guys, I know it is very hard to work under and obey and submit underneath someone that you don't like. And not just someone that you don't like, but someone who, in your opinion, is not good for the company, or is not good for the restaurant, or is not good for the work environment. It's really hard to work for those people. It's really hard to submit to those people, isn't it, for those of you that are in that situation? And yet, the store operator wanted this manager on her staff. And so I had to learn, and I didn't learn it as fast as I should have, but I had to learn how to obey and submit even when I disagreed with how she was running the shift or what she felt was most important for the policies or the expectations for the staff. How could I have done that? And how could you possibly do that? How can you sincerely obey and revere people that are not revereable, that are not easy to obey as far as their, who they are as a person? How, how could the Ephesian slaves do that? We talked a little bit about some of the benefits of why you would sell yourself into slavery and that some slaves actually took that in positive directions. But on a negative side of things, guys, some masters... They did not treat their slaves well. Some masters I, who were men would take advantage of the female slaves. Think about that. And Paul is saying that you are supposed to obey and respect these people? What? What? Paul cannot possibly be meaning this, can he? Perhaps, perhaps he'll provide some exceptions. I mean, he's gone this far, and maybe now he'll provide an exception to all of this. He can't possibly intend to call Christians to sincerely obey and revere people like that. But what do the next words say? To those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. It's not only to all earthly masters. It's not only with reverence. It's not only with sincerity. It is obedience to Christ. Paul leaves absolutely no room for maneuvering away from this command. Ephesian slaves, he says, you are to obey and respect your masters as if you were obeying and respecting Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior himself. Countryside high schoolers, you are to obey your authorities as if you were obeying and respecting Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior himself. And Paul keeps going. In case you haven't gotten it enough, in case this hasn't struck home, in this fourth specific, he explains what this obedience is not and what it is. 
Verse 6. What, what, what do you mean as to Christ? Verse 6. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers. Okay? So first we have not external service. See, you might try to outwit this command by looking good when you are being watched. You will please men since they can't see your heart, but as soon as their back is turned, you do whatever you want. And guys, this happens all the time in the workplace. And you've either experienced it yourself or you've seen it in other people that you work with. People who will work hard when they're supposed to, when they are in sight of the manager, in sight of the person in charge, or when you're supposed to be practicing and the coach comes out and you know that he's watching you, or your music teacher is paying close attention to how you're doing, or you know that time is coming up in which you're about to go to your practice and so you better make sure to start practicing now so that you've actually made some progress because when they ask you, have you been practicing? Well, you better have made sure that you were, right? You perform because others are watching you. Others are paying attention to you. And Paul's saying, unbelievers do that. People who don't know Christ do that. You're not supposed to live that way. You're not supposed to be living by way of eye service. So instead of being men pleasers, what should we be? Well, he gives us the answer. So, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So we have not external service, but instead inward submission. So, in today's society, we have a bit of a leg up on the Ephesians because slavery is not widely accepted anymore. We are free to change jobs, to go to a different school, make various other kinds of changes to our lives. But in having such options, the Christians also have a leg up on us because the application is so much more easily understood because Paul says, as slaves of Christ. See, if you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. Just as the Ephesians were slaves to their masters, they could very easily correlate that to we're slaves of our masters, we belong to our masters, we obey our masters, we don't have any out. Same way, Christian, you belong to Christ. You're under the authority of Christ. You obey Christ. You submit to Christ. He owns you if you're a Christian. And so for them, it was very easy for them to make that connection. For us, maybe a little bit more difficult because we don't have an exact replica of that, as it were, because we aren't slaves today. But it's interesting. You know what word is translated um, when it isn't in verse 7, sorry, I got ahead of myself. Verse 7, notice that we're going to look at it. It says, with goodwill render service as to the Lord. That word, Lord. You know what that word, Lord, is translated as when it's not referring to Jesus? Master. So the Ephesians are not only hearing they're slaves of Christ, they're also hearing in the reverse sense, Christ is their master. So, now, you only become a slave of Christ if you have been saved. And so this is the corollary, this is, the, this is what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, if you've been saved, the only way you can possibly be saved 
is if God has changed your heart and you have repented of your sin, believe that Christ has died for your punishment on the cross. And so you've repented of your sin and you seek to follow him and then he changes your heart and then you love him. You have the capacity for love and you love him so much because of what he's done for you. And so then, because of what he's done for you, though you are his slave, though he owns you, what would you not do for him? What would you not obey? How would you not respect him? How would you not revere him? In the same way, you, the Ephesian slaves were to treat their masters with that view, with that perspective. You would do whatever God wants. I, I ask you, if you've, if you've been regenerated, if you've been saved, if you are a Christian, then your mentality, I, I pray, I hope, is that even if you may struggle, even if you may wrestle with this, your desire is to do whatever God tells you to do through his word. Whatever you know is right that you are supposed to be doing, that's your desire. Even if your sin may make that difficult, you yearn to honor him. You yearn to love him and to serve him. You want to do that with everything you have. And you'll do that because you couldn't possibly conceive of wanting to do anything else because of what he's done for you, because of how he's changed you. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The world hates authority. And furthermore, from young men and young women, they expect you to hate authority. That's what everybody else does. That's what, that's what everybody else your age does. They hate authority. They can't wait to get out from under it. They can't wait to reject it. They can't wait to slander it. But if you refuse to conform to the world, if you obey and respect your authorities, they will look at you and go, there's something different about you. There's something different about you. You, you see what they're like. You see how they act. You see what they tell you to do. You, you see what they tell me to do. And you're obeying them. And you're respecting them. And you're honoring them. What kind of God do you serve? 1 Peter 2.15, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. See, that is why Paul is giving this command. That is why this command is so irreversible, why there are no exceptions. Because in doing this, in fulfilling this command, you are a shining, brilliant beacon in a world of darkness. 
This workplace is dark, man. I mean, I was at, I was at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and the people I worked with there, and the things that they talked about, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like in other places. can't tell you the number of times I've witnessed people absolutely shocked by a Christian young man or a Christian young woman who is genuinely obedient and respectful. If you're a Christian, that's what you should want. That's what you should desire. You should desire to be that way. So that's the first sign, the obedience of slaves. But there's a second, the goodwill of slaves. Verse 7, with goodwill, render service. The goodwill. The, the word here is, this, is similar to Matthew 5, 25, where Jesus says, make friends. That's the idea. How do you make friends with someone? Well, you sacrifice of yourself to benefit them. You sacrifice of yourself to, to please someone else. And the other person does the same to you. Even on a secular level, that's what friendship is. You give of yourself for another person, and they do the same back to you. You're making friends with each other. And biblically speaking, that benefit is making someone look more like Jesus. That's what true love is. That's what true goodwill is. And so slaves, as we've already seen, would have plenty of reason to harbor ill will towards their masters. Would they not? You may have plenty of reasons to harbor ill will towards your authorities. Paul's making the case that slaves should instead serve their masters with the intention not merely to obey and not merely to show respect, but to go above and beyond that. You are to be benefiting and pleasing your masters. How is that accomplished? Being obedient not merely to the letter, of what you know is supposed to happen, but in every way, giving everything you have. Think of Daniel, Daniel 4, 19. Daniel's been serving under Nebuchadnezzar, right? This man who conquered his nation, who stole him from his family and from his land, brought him all the way to Babylon, uh, is completely pagan, tries to get him to eat things sacrificed to idols, uh, threatens to kill him and all of his friends and all of the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He's power mad. And Daniel serves this man. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in Daniel 4. And in verse 19, when the king tells Daniel this dream, Daniel tells this pagan, unrepentant man, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. And then he describes the dream. And in verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel wanted this pagan man to flourish, to prosper, not not from the standpoint of he wanted him to keep sinning. Absolutely not. He just said, stop your sinning. But he cared for this man. 
he loved this man. And he was appalled at the thought that this man would suffer. What about you? Would you be appalled if that authority in your life just had something bad happen to them? Had something unfortunate happen to them? Would you be appalled? Would you hate that for them? Or would you enjoy it? Would you like that to happen to them? It's not the mentality of a believer. A believer loves their authorities. A believer has goodwill towards their authorities. And that's the point Paul is making. Again, he says, he gives us two specifics to this goodwill. He says, as to the Lord and not to men. That's goodwill to Christ. Again, what would you not do for Christ, your Savior? Paul says, channel that towards seeking goodwill for your authority. Why, though? That authority might never notice. Or I might be benefiting someone who isn't a believer. Or someone else might take the credit. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. The goodwill of slaves will be rewarded. See, you are not being obedient and rendering goodwill for the sake of earthly recognition or benefit. The earthly impact of your obedience and goodwill towards your authorities is not relevant to what God cares about. He cares that what you do is right. That's all he cares about. And he cares that you work hard at it. He also doesn't care about your status. Whether you ascend to a high position or descend to a low position or just stay right where you are for the rest of your life, he doesn't care about that. He doesn't care where you go. He cares about whether you're doing what's right and whether you're giving it your all. Obedience and goodwill is all he asks, and that is what he will reward. Paul says that if you do those good things, you'll receive good things from him. And it may not be in this life, but it will be in the future. So, we've seen the first sign of a healthy Christian relationship in the workplace, the obedience of slaves. We've seen the second sign, the goodwill of slaves. And Paul comes to a third, and he goes towards the other side of this equation, which addresses the authorities themselves. Verse 9, masters, do the same things to them. So we have the goodwill of masters. In the same way that slaves were to pursue good for their masters, doing good things for them, masters were to do good to their slaves. And Paul provides three specific ways to do that. He says, give up threatening, so you're not to be sinfully threatening those under you. Masters would often threaten their slaves either idly, just, you know, get a kick out of it, or they wouldn't necessarily do anything, but the slave didn't know that, and so they would threaten them to inspire them to work harder. Or maliciously, you know, doing it, you know, more than just to kick a kick out of it, but because they hate that person, and they want to see them suffer. 
Masters would do things like that, and this is what Paul is forbidding. If you, if any of you ever find yourself in the flipped position, where now you are the authority, or perhaps more likely, you're not necessarily the highest authority, but you're somewhere in the middle. You were low, now you're a little bit higher, and now you're above all the other people that you used to work with. Maybe that kind of scenario. Paul says, give up threatening. Don't threaten those under you. When you're given authority over others, you're not to use your authority as a bludgeon to whack people over the head with. Instead, you're there to care for those underneath you and to wisely lead them. And what's the motivation behind this? Very similar to the slave. You're to remember Christ as your master. Paul says, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. You may be the master, but there's a master over you. It's always, whether it's earthly and there's always another master over you, or whether you are the big kahuna, the guy up at, in the top, well, God's over you. There's always an authority over you. And so when you wield authority, you're going to answer for how you wielded that authority. So it's not to be viewed lightly. And Paul reminds again, there's no partiality with him. Christ is impartial. Your, your earthly status means nothing to God. So don't be tempted to think that you can sway his judgments by impressing him. So, that's our passage. That's verses 5 through 9. So just to close, going back to being, a, being someone underneath authority, how do you do this? I mean, that's, that's a big ask. That, that's a big command. The only way you can do that is first to, if, to be a Christian. It's the only way you can do that in the first place. It's the only way you have the power, the, the ability, because only Christ can give you that kind of power. Only God can give you that kind of love. But practically speaking, pray for your authority. I know we, we say things like that. We say, you know, pray for your leaders. Pray, pray for your authorities. No, guys. Pray for them by name. If they're not saved, pray that they would be saved. If they're wrestling with something in their own life that you know of, pray for that. Ask them how you could pray for them. Tell them you're a Christian and you, you want to do good to them. You, you want to pray for them. What can you pray for? Love, recognize that God would desire for them to be saved if they're not saved. And take that reality and remember, oh, and God loved me even though I was a sinner. I should show that love to them. How can I change my attitude so that I remember that apart from Christ, there go I? That manager that I spoke of earlier, that's, that's, what, that's how I ultimately came to submit to them and respect them, was I realized I have to love this person, and I haven't been. I've been hating them. I've been hating them behind their back. I've been talking about them 
behind her back with other people. I've been slandering her. I can't do that anymore. I have to love her. I have to pray for her. And guys, ultimately, by God's grace, that turned around. And it came to be that where before we always were against each other and everybody knew it, it got to the point where she got really excited when I was on her shift, when she saw that my name was there on the roster because she knew that it would be a good day because I would work hard, because I would respect her when hardly anybody else did. And guys, that's what this is about. Again, we're walking as children of light in the darkness. So, I hope this passage has shown us that Jesus Christ is your ultimate authority if you're a Christian. So, if you are, and he is, you will obey and respect your authorities as you would obey and respect Jesus Christ and trust him with the outcome. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time that we can come to your word. These are hard truths because we live in a, in a fallen world. I ask that you would help to train us to grow in our love for others, in our willingness to submit to the authorities that you have put in our lives so that we can be a light in a dark world, so that we can shine for you, that others may look at us and go, who is their God? I can't possibly think of living like that. And Lord, maybe there might be some here tonight who are thinking, I don't do that. I don't view my authorities that way. I hate my authorities. I can't imagine loving my authorities. Lord, it, that might, uh, I pray that to those here who are unbelievers who, who think that way, that you would reveal that to them, that this might be the day of salvation. In your name, amen.